0: Hi, I'm Giancarlo Esposito, and I'm here to introduce you to my new series,
1: Parish. My character, Gray Parish, was a getaway driver. I'm retired from life, you know that. He's in a world over his head. Tell me about this driver
0: job. And he's asked to start to figure things out. I did what you told me to. He will try to do what's right and seek
1: justice. Parish, all new Sundays at 9 on AMC and stream on AMC+.
0: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. My chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers. To hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. If you're going to see The Lion King on Broadway, don't be late. The first number, The Circle of Life, is as miraculous an opening as you'll ever see. Life-sized animal puppets parade through the aisles to African music. It's breathtaking. Julie Taymor, the woman who brought this animated Disney musical to the stage, which went on to become the most successful Broadway musical of all time, is my guest today. Since The Lion King, Julie's work has run the gamut. She's directed Shakespeare, operas, films... And a solo show. Her recent staging of A Midsummer Night's Dream christened a new theater space in Brooklyn. This summer, she released a movie of the production.
3: And we prepared it over three days and shot it. But I knew the play well, and I and I could make a shot list. I knew it very well, so I could I could really think about what would be the scenes that I would want to do. And that's it, the last week of performances.
0: Whose idea was it to do the play itself? What was the genesis of the play?
3: Well, the Theatre for New Audience was getting a new uh, new theatre, and Jeffrey Horowitz, the producer, asked me if I would inaugurate the new house. And, you know, he knew I wanted to do Macbeth, but he said, go ahead. I said, are you out of your mind? You can't open a new theatre with Macbeth. So I had readings. Sure you can. Oh, sure you can. Burn you could. Burn the house down. I don't think so. But we did readings of four At plays. At least we'll
0: die with harness on right. our back.
3: <laughs> You've done it. I know that. I have, yeah. Um, So I decided, even though I hadn't really been all that interested in Dream, I decided it was the right one to bless a new house because it's, it the New Amsterdam, it was it blessed that house years ago. It's 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 was created by Shakespeare for a wedding, we we hear, and that's what a new theater is. It's a wedding between a new audience and the artists, and I felt that it would bring in the audience that would cross from young kids right up through. Old age and deceased, and we'd, we would, we would, um, we'd be properly doing what what I think a new play has to do in a new house. I mean, not a new play, but a production should do in a new house. So it was. It, Jeffrey was thrilled. Everybody was happy, and it worked out. How do you cast? Oh well, the, this, the woman who played Titania. Yes, pa- Titania. Oh, <clears throat> Tina Benko. Oh my God. Well, you should—see, oh You didn't know her, right? Oh my god. She should be a national treasure in America. She's oh my an god. American New York City
0: actor. She was and she came out on stage and I was like, Oh my god. She's gorgeous. She's she's, unbelievable.
3: she's, she's so talented. And and she was, she was the, the, the,
0: most amazing, the most amazing representation of Titania I'd ever seen. Well
3: that's great. I, I but adore all her. Of you did, she yeah. she auditioned. I didn't know who she was. I heard that she had done a one woman show, Jackie, on Jackie Onassis. And Peter Sellers had used her. But if she were in England, if we were in London was that from tempest if we were in england now as once we were um she'd be known but the person who i cast first was Catherine hunter who played puck and and she was pivotal for me because if i didn't find my puck i didn't know if i wanted to do the play so i asked her over a year in advance and i had seen her she's she's sort of she's english and american she can work in both places. And I'd seen her in London at the National 10 years ago in Carol Churchill's The Stryker. And I'd seen her here a couple of times. And I went, oh, my God, this woman. She is the background that I have with Lecoq, studying in Paris. But she's one of the greats. She's played King Lear in London. She's one of the only women, Richard III. She's just brilliant. And uh, she came over and we did workshops with children. Because if I, I felt... If I couldn't figure out how to do the fairy world, the supernatural fairy world, I, I wouldn't find – I had to find my way into that. Because so I didn't want to do puppets. I didn't want to do what people expected me to do. Because for years, they, oh, you've got to do Midsummer Night's Dream, right? You know, I go, why? Oh, because you can do the – and then, oh, good reason not do There'll be plenty to of puppets it. about Yeah, exactly. So there aren't. There's a few right. deer masks. But I, I, I wanted to figure out if I could – create this rude elemental world. As opposed to fairies, I call them the rude elementals, you know, the mechanicals are the rude sure. mechanicals. And we did workshops, three or four of them with the New York City school children from all over. We start out with 80, and we whittled it down to 17 or 18 after a couple of months. And Catherine came over, was the Pied Piper, and together we, we had these wild workshops where we'd try out the, these young kids playing the forest, the maniacal part of the forest, the, um, the malignant, the terrorizing. The, what, what, why I felt they were important is because the play, which is about marriage, is about codifying love, right? It's about putting strictures. What's a marriage? But putting fetters on something that is natural, human beings, civilized, we need to organize. But children under a certain age are pre-that. They're raw. They're rude. They they don't understand those limitations. And I wanted to play that aspect because the night of Midsummer Night's Dream is a night where everything goes topsy-turvy and haywire. So the kids could be many, many things, including, finally, the children of the court.
0: When you said you had to have my puck, are you from... This school, I should say, or maybe it it varies, where you know what you want and you go and find that, or someone shows it to you, or both. I'm both.
3: You asked me about how I cast. I knew I needed someone who understood that Shakespeare. There's two parts to Shakespeare. Of course, there's the language. Usually, people separate. They go, "Oh, we shouldn't do spectacle Shakespeare. We want to hear the language and the iambic pentameter." And it's Shakespeare wrote visual effects play. And by the time Midsummer Night's Dream happened, it was inside and there were footlights and there were fairies. I'm sure that they did their little fairies coming in on ropes and stuff like that in his day. But I knew that, that with Puck, you needed a transformer. You needed someone who could not only deliver the incredible language, but who was neither male nor female, neither eight or nine or 50 or 80. She's everything. She's he, she... And Catherine has that. Yes. She's she's your age, and yet you'd think she's five years old some of the time. Right. She's four foot eight, so she yeah. mixed with these kids. She's a
0: remarkable-looking actress.
3: She's, a, she's totally, you know, her body is all... Defo- she can do voice. anything with her body. Yes, and she's got that, oh, Julie, let's do it like that. She always talks
0: in this voice. Now, you... Um, I want you to describe in whatever word you want to use the period from when you're like 10 or 11 years old and you go into Boston and your parents have you going by yourself into Boston. Ba- I mean, you have a you very, looked me up. <laughs> well, you have a very unique period there that leads to a lot of uh, very eclectic things yeah. in France and mm. Japan. and What was that about?
3: You know, in those days, the early days, the, in the late, I guess, 60s and 70s, First of all, I'm a lot younger than my brother and sister, and my parents had a lot to contend with, with them going through right. the 60s, and they let me alone. I don't know if you ever saw Across the Universe. Did you ever see the Beatles yes. musical? Okay, that's the closest thing to my family, and that older brother and si- my sister was very politically active. My brother was a musician and a cab. Anyway, my parents had their hands full. They were great parents, but they basically let me be free. Yeah. So I literally took the, the, um, the tea in Boston, and I would go to Boston Children's Theater at age, probably starting 8 or 9, after school, 10, 11, and, and started acting. But I, I was in more of the Cinderella's and Tom Sawyer's. And I think Cinderella was the first thing I ever played. And I always wanted to be the evil stepsisters, but I, I was never cast I I wanted to be a character actress, but I had this, you know, nice, pretty little face. And so I never really liked doing that. That's why I didn't go into acting, because where I want to play is not what I look like. Probably. Maybe now, maybe now when you get older. <laughs> but uh, then when I was about 13 or 14, and this is um, – What is this? You know, this is a time where Grotowski and the the Living Theatre and many people were creating theatre from scratch, from ideas. And I joined a company, I was the youngest by far, Theatre Workshop of Boston. And Julie Portman was the director. But they were creating work based on political ideas. And the first one they did was called Riot, which was really about the racial issues in America. The one that I got involved in was was called Tribe, and it was about Native Americans. And all the people in the company, this was a younger company, probably 16, 17 through 20, and I was the youngest, we would bring in the material. And we were working very physically with our bodies in a church basement, the Arlington Street Church. What was exciting was we were responsible for creating the content of the material. But even at that age of 15, 16, I felt that Though I was good physically, I wanted more discipline. So I graduated high school early and went to Paris at 16. Yeah, and these parents, they went, okay, fine, go. And I lived with this 21-year-old Deborah Tate, who was a photographer and who was wild. We were living in Paris and, and, I mean— When you were how old now? 16. Great. And I went to mom school. I went (laughs) to—it called me Jacques Lecoq.
0: Yes, internationale international, the yes. theatre Jacques Lecoq,
3: and that's where Simon McBurney, a lot of directors and actors whom I really admire. Now, a lot of us went there and had this training, which was physical training: how to use your body to express, not to do mime, not to end up being a mime. But this is where I started really understanding the power of mask, the mask, and even puppetry. She would this this crazy lady named Madame Citron. Whose face looked like a lemon? She was like a lemon. She was very brutal. But she would take—we would take objects, brooms, and candles, and all kinds of objects—and make them come alive, understanding what, what hardness, what metal, what what kind of character. You know how when we say someone is, you know, they're 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 as, as brittle as a. Brick or something, you know, to express it. So we would take shapes and and materials and make stories and characters out of them. So it's a different approach to puppetry, but very interesting. And the mask work was there to understand, to get yourself out of yourself. Like Mm -hmm. when you can wear a mask, you can transport yourself to being a completely different human being because you lose your identity. And I understood how the body then becomes a complete sculpture. So I learned a lot that year at Lecoq. I didn't stay for the full two years. The second year was clowning, and I'm not. The red nose didn't appeal to me. I didn't want to go there. But, but I did get a lot out of that. Where'd you go
0: from there? You're seventeen now.
3: Yeah, I went to college. I went to Oberlin.
0: Right. So you went to
3: Oberlin, and I. I, at Oberlin, there was a man from named Herbert Blau. Did you ever hear of Herbert Blau? Mm-hmm. He used to run Lincoln Center. Mm-hmm. Then he went to CalArts, started CalArts, and he brought Bill Irwin, um, Sharon Ott, and about four or five actors came from CalArts, and he started a program at Oberlin, an interdisciplinary theater thing.
0: To so, so at this point for you, it's mostly about acting. You're an actress. No, I went to Oberlin to study anthropology okay.
3: and, and religion. Of course you did. Yes, no. Right. <laughs> I just couldn't stay away from theater. I, I didn't really want to study theater. I didn't mind doing it.
0: Why anthropology?
3: Uh, because that's the origins of theater. I I loved... I loved anthropo I loved um, traveling. I went... I have to go back for a second. Before I went to Oberlin, I went to Sri Lanka one summer, to Ceylon. It was Ceylon back then. And on the experiment in international living. So you sort of see I constantly, whether it was Boston or out to Asia... My parents let me go, and I loved. I loved experiencing other culture. It
0: was a big part of. Did you keep in touch with your parents? Yeah, while we were- <laughs>
3: yeah, I did. Okay, I'm very true. close to them. I never had a. I never went through all the crap that people do with their parents because yeah. they treated me with enormous respect, and it I took always you called serious, them. By, they did, and I called them by their first name since I was little. I didn't call them mommy, daddy. I don't know what that was about, but they. I never had to lie to them. And when I did lie, I lied once and told them afterwards. I said, you made me lie because you didn't trust me. And that never happened again. I was about 15, you know. It was about going away with my boyfriend. And they didn't want me, so I lied and went anyway.
0: Was miserable the whole time. Boyfriends will get you to do that. That's right. With That's what... the right boyfriend, <laughs> That's anyway. Right. That's Ceylon, Sri Lanka. What Ceylon? happens there?
3: Well, I lived with a family and, uh, and saw this extraordinary culture. I was in India. Went through India, a bit of India, and then Ceylon, lived with the Ceylonese family, and started to get my interest in that part of the world back then. And I did come to New York in between, actually. I did do that in New York. I came and I went to Herbert Berghoff School of Acting. I acted in the Lower East Side. I worked with Bob at the in Brooklyn at the um, Chelsea Theater Center. But I didn't—I had my resume and I went out. But that's what I'm saying. I didn't really want to do the—, the I. I wouldn't be playing the roles I wanted, so I was more interested
0: in theater that you created from scratch. You wouldn't be playing the roles you wanted.
3: No, you no, didn't, you didn't that. I didn't want to do ingenue stuff. You didn't. No, not a seventeen. No, I really didn't. And soap operas and
0: you couldn't. You're, you're naming all the things I ended up doing. By the way, you're you're kind of pissing on my whole early career, but which is ha-
3: fine. But but you stayed with wanting to be an actor,
0: right? Reluctantly, yeah, yeah, yeah it, now reluctantly. Now look what you're doing. Well, I mean, it's 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 changed so much in my lifetime. It's very different. You know, when, when I started, it was a um, it was easier to make it. It wasn't easy, but it was easier. You could slalom between the one for them, one for me, one for them, yeah. one for me. Go do a play, come back and do a, make some money, back and forth. And now uh, it's not like that anymore.
3: No, it's not in, in any in any of those areas. It's not like that. When, and, do you st-
0: when do you start directing?
3: Well, I started in college a little bit. But then I went to Indonesia. At the end of Oberlin, I got a f- traveling fellowship in visual theater, experimental puppet theater, to Eastern Europe, Indonesia, and Japan.
0: And pronounce it for me.
3: Uh-oh. Where's my glasses? lo. Well, that didn't happen right away. Okay. I I was going to spend a year in Japan with—have you ever heard of the Bunraku? Uh-huh. Okay, so there's a folk Bunraku called the Awaji, and— this is where is a very ancient technique where p- three people manipulate the puppet. And, and I was on my way to Japan, but I went to Indonesia first. I was going to spend three months in Indonesia, and I ended up four years at age 21. Because Indonesia, Java, I was in Java first and then Bali and then Sumatra, I toured. I had never experienced theater in its original form. Now, going back to Oberlin, those were the days where you made up your own major, And my major was folklore and mythology, and I studied shamanism and the early forms of theater. I was in a country now where I was watching traditional theater function in all of its original ways because there was no television. There was very little film. I mean, I was—40 years ago, I was in Java and Bali, and there was so little of that. Villages were distinct from a village 10 miles away. They had their own culture, distinct. And I saw nine-hour plays that would be from the Mahabharata or the Ramayana, the epics. You know, they're like our epics, our Shakespeare or our Greeks. And watch these plays that would go on in the audience moving back and forth behind the shadow puppet screen or behind and in front and see that during the nine hours of a play, teenagers were flirting with others where people would talk or children would fall asleep, where you'd You'd wake up for the clowns, you know, the fools, like in Lear, where politics of the day were discussed because the comedians would speak in the local language, where philosophies were all done in ancient Sanskrit, Kawi, but nobody understood it except for the, you know, the Hindu priests or whoever. I, I watched theater function in its original, humanizing way, and that blew my mind. As an artist, As an artist who was trying not to be an artist, meaning I could never commit to saying I was going to do theater, I suddenly found myself in a place where I understood the origins and watched it function in this most astounding way, and I decided to stay. And I got encouraged to stay by a major uh, political theater figure who was always in prison and in and out, Rendra, W.S. Rendra, Javanese, Muslim, who thought I'd be his fourth wife, and I said no you didn't sign on no I didn't sign on but I did sign on to do choreography for him and um, the problem with radio is you can't see facial expressions you could have been the Elizabeth Taylor of Java
0: (laughs) (laughs) Julie Taymor now makes her home in New York City listen to our archives to hear what Debbie Reynolds says of working with the real Elizabeth Taylor as well as Joan Collins and Shirley MacLaine
4: well, we had a lot of fun working together. Now, Joan never lets you watch her makeup, and she hides in her trailer and sure. does all her makeup. You know, yeah. Kind of, but we all kind of I'm do Sure, it's that. quite an
0: operation, yeah.
4: Well, it is an operation for all of us. There's a certain point when you look in the mirror and everything is moved someplace else.
0: Uh-huh. Take a listen at here's the thing.org.
4: HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. To save, visit healthlock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's healthlock.com.
1: This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global.
0: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. The New York Times called my guest Julie Taymor the cosmic P.T. Barnum of contemporary stagecraft. Her work draws heavily on her eclectic life experiences. In her early 20s, Julie was the director of a theater group in Indonesia. She could have stayed and lived a very different life, but she had a sense it just wouldn't work.
3: I felt after living that many years in Indonesia, I would never, ever be accepted as an Indonesian. But if a Javanese guy came to New York, they could disappear. I was always that white woman with the bulu bulu, which is, I don't have it now, but hair on the arms, feathers, you know. And also, I had to deal with the fact that there's two words that describe human beings in in Indonesian. Halus and kasar. Halus is refined and kasar is crude. Well, being the head of a theater company at age 21, 22... You can't be halloos. I had to deal with the fact that just being in that position was really tricky because you're the boss, and I had a 50-year-old master mask performer from Bali who was one of the company, but I'm the director of the company. And at that time, I had a great partner, a photographer, a Javanese photographer, who was sort of the daddy. We were the mommy and daddy uh, of the company, and we all lived together in this Mother Death Temple Hotel, and we started to create this original piece of theater, and I acted in it as well.
0: I acted as the
3: outsider, the one who's trespassing. Did it all come
0: back to you? Did you enjoy that?
3: Oh yeah, I hadn't stopped right. acting had, then. Okay. I hadn't. St- I didn't stop acting professionally or literally until I came back to the states, where you have to be put in boxes, and you can't be a director and a designer and an actor. You have to be one thing or another. And I, I had stories to tell. So I decided the best thing was to be the kind of... I call myself a creator more. And then I got boxed into being a designer in New York because I designed at the public theater for Elizabeth Suedos. I designed the Haggadah, you know, the the Passover, mm-hmm. which was done every three years. I, I was the set, costume, mask, and puppet designer. And I had never studied that. I just did it. And choreographer. and Sort of created that with her because that was the... She liked that. That was the kind of background that I had, really had, which was to create from a ritual. I'd just been in a country for four years where theater comes from ritual and religion. So doing the Haggadah, the Jewish Passover ceremony, was really something I understood. I'm jumping around here. No, no.
0: So when do you come back to the U.S.? Well... And why?
3: Four years of Indonesia. Well, I have to tell the story. I, we created this play... In Bali, we had a tsunami in the meantime, and everybody was living. They had moved That One hotel got taken away by the tsunami, and we're all living crowded in these rooms, and we're ready to go on tour. And it, this mixture of Hindus, Muslims, um, Jews, Christians, and atheists, you know, we're all there. And we all get on this night bus. Uh, we take the ferry from Bali to Java and get on a night bus to go to Surabaya, and we crash on our way to our first performance after a year of rehearsal. And total truck and bus. The truck driver died, and I got glass all over, and Mm. people's backs were... So you can imagine being the mommy of this troupe. It was horrendous. It was horrendous. And I had two operations, and... But, talk about my parents, I finally... I came home, and then I said to them, no, I have to go back again, and they let me. And I went back and my troop got together and then we toured for three more months. And at the end of that, I just felt I, I wanted to go back to the States. I, I I felt I needed to, but I also wanted to bring what I'd learned there. And I came to New York and went to La Mama, to Ellen Stewart, and we couldn't bring all of my troop. I found Indonesians here and Bill Irwin, who I'd worked with, he came and played the, opposite, the character with me. And then that was the last thing I said, well... I, I really have to go back to making my own shows. So I worked off Off-Broadway and then I started to work Off-Broadway and started to create original shows or direct things that existed.
0: Was Broadway something you wanted to do? Or was Was Broadway something you thought, no, not for me? Not for me. Not for me. Not for me. No. How did no, that no, change?
3: No. Well, somebody like Tom Schumacher at Disney called me up one day, and and I I did—
0: And they told you you could do what you want. They wanted you to do what you do. That's
3: what they did. They did. They said, do you know The Lion King? And I said, said, no. I mean, I hadn't seen the animated film, and that was a nice big laugh at the other end of the telephone because— that was weird. And he said, well, I had just done opera in Japan, Oedipus Rex in Japan, and I did Juan Darien at, you know, I'd had shows and I'd won awards. It wasn't like I was in some obscure little off-off-Broadway right. theater. I had, I was doing opera around the world and, and um, other kinds of theater. And Lion King, I looked at the movie and I went, wow, how much fun to try and figure out how to do a stampede on stage. That's like... This, also, I, I thought it was thrilling to try and bring that animal
0: world to the stage. And, what, what have they seen of yours? Well,
3: Juan Dorian Tha- had won many awards. Right. You know, the, the Uruguayan short story that Elliot Goldenthal and I had done three times, or right. by that time, two times, and toured it, which is, an, which is a jaguar tale of uh, transformation. So I'd work with – my work is in the Disney world, fairy tales, myths, animal legends, the green bird. The same you know, DNA. It is. It's just my aesthetic is totally different. And and when I got together with them, I said, you know my aesthetic. I'm a, I'm an ar- a sculptor, plastic artist. I don't do so airbrush. La-
0: so when you first lay out <laughs> uh, even the most primary takes on what Lion King's going to be on Broadway, did they kind of lean into each other and go, we've got to get rid of her? No. Or they got it? Did they get it from they the did. beginning? They did.
3: Schumacher it. got it. Schneider got it. You didn't scare it. them. Um, With how
0: complicated, it other was. people
3: got scared, but not the main people, including Michael Eisner. I made one of the first things I made um, was the thing that we call the gazelle wheel. If, if you know, after eighteen years, maybe I some people have seen times. it. But it's it. I used bicycle wheels, and the idea was to create gazelles that would that would leap. Across and I made a model of that, and I had done the drawings of the how you would always show the humans in the masks and in the bodies, whether it was scar or a zebra or the elephants, you'd see the people in the legs. And so the concept of not hiding the human beings, of of having the strings and rods exposed, right. I brought my models and my drawings, and they got it. And there were some people, and I, I can leave them mentionless, but who didn't get it and who were very high up in Disney, but Disney film who didn't really know theater. So we did some workshops, and everything worked. And then Eisner said, the thing that I, I really love, he said, well, let's do your original concept. Let's go back to the one that you first presented where all the doubt happened. And he didn't doubt, but he wanted to know for sure. He said, because the, the bigger the risk, the bigger the payoff. And I thought for the head of a company, that was a really terrific motto. And for them came true. For them. <laughs> well, me, for that point, at that yes. point, yes.
0: Right. So, so, so the. Um, <laughs> at what point did you sit there and say you knew you were on to something? In the early rehearsals or?
3: Oh, no, right. from the, You know, I'll tell you the big thing that was so exciting was the movie had five Elton and Tim songs with uh, Hans Zimmer and Lebo M doing all the South African Stuff and Mark Mancina, and there was an album that was put out at the same time as the movie called *Rhythm of the Pride Lands*, and it was all of the South African in those languages, Khoisan, Zulu, and you know Swai, uh, Susutu. And you heard Lebo and the chorus do all of these songs, and I heard that, and I said to the to the producers, "What if we take those and make fill out the score with that and keep it in its original language?" And they did it. And then Lebo came on as a major composer, and I wrote some of the lyrics to one of the songs. But we took those songs and we made them work into the story structure. And people love the visual, but it's the it's the first thing on Lion King is that na tsigong. Yeah. You know, when you hear the chant and they come down, and and it's hard to say why, but but that kind of music, that choral, spiritual choral South African singing, gets you as much as any imagery. And we knew that right away in the first workshop, minus visuals. You knew that the story worked and the music worked. And even though I think imagery is a huge part of it, the book has to work. The music has to work. It has to be there and work, and it did.
0: You win the Tony Award for Best Director of a Musical. And would you say that after that there was just an onslaught of people wanting you to replicate that same kind of a... Not an onslaught. No. Uh,
3: A little bit. One of the first things I think was uh, Steven Spielberg. I think I got an offer to do some kind of children's, maybe even the cat in the hat. I'm not sure. And I said, yeah, sure. If the cat's black, you know, I don't know whatever it is, but I wanted to do Titus. I wanted to do Titus Andronicus, which I had directed off Broadway before Lion King. And I think this is the perverse side of my nature, which is I don't like to be put into a box. And I like to do something that I've never done before. I'd done Shakespeare, but I wanted to do a feature film of Titus. And I, I wanted to work with the best writer in the English language and the best actors in the Tony. English. Tony. You're Tony, our Tony. And so for me, going from Lion King, which is brilliant actors, but it's still, you know, the it's a musical. It's broad for families. Uh, I I was I really felt that at that this point, which was nineteen ninety eight, ninety nine, that issue of violence in American culture and violence in general. This was what was really on my mind, as it was on everybody's minds. There was the Columbine, there was uh, the Menendez brothers. I remember very much feeling that that this we're coming to the end of. What is it, the twentieth century? And lo and behold, but nothing's changed, it's just gotten worse. But you there was an idealism at the time that if you take this incredible play of Shakespeare's, which is the best dissertation on violence ever written, ever written. It's astounding. And try and tell that story. You know, that that really had meaning for me. And then Hopkins saw Lion King. I mean, this is interesting. He saw Lion King. I I I had done workshops with Pacino on doing it. But he never committed, you know, Al. So he would never commit. And finally, I had the money, whether it was Pacino or somebody else, didn't have to be Pacino. And I called up Tony Hop. where well, we found Tony Hopkins. And he said, well, let's have a meeting. And three hours after the meeting, I get a – he says, okay, I get a message when I come back to New York. I said, well, you don't have to make a decision right away. He said, no, no, let's do it. He liked that he saw a director. In line. He liked that there was a person with a concept and that I had an idea about I had done the play. So he signed on and then I got Jessica Lang and Alan Cummings and Harry Lennox and Matthew Reese and Jonathan Reese Myers and all these fabulous actors to do it. It was it was the right thing for me to do, maybe not commercially, but so what,
0: you know? have you struggled with that about movies? Abdicating Commerciality? Have you ever thought, oh, I'll go do that to make a living?
3: Well, I make a living.
0: So no, I've, no, I'm well aware of that. But in terms of, would you just sit there and say, you could make more of a living? Do you get tempted? It's not about
3: making a living for me. It's about being able to do the films I want. And Period. Be, yeah. That's
0: what governs everything.
3: It, or, or theater or opera. Yes, completely. Because I, I make a good enough living with Lion King. So I don't have to do it to make a you living. Have I, have, I have tremendous freedom. I, it's the greatest boon that an artist can have is to make that... Choice of the kind of work, so I can do an opera here. I can do a a, a one woman show at the public theater, like with Anne Hathaway this this spring, which I love doing. Uh, the movies I want to make run the gamut, and something like Frida was very successful, Co- didn't cost very much, and made a lot of money compared to what it cost. But then I've done three Shakespeare films, and if you don't have money to promote. A shake any movie if you don't spend money in advertising
0: and promotion no movie will do well but that's a wonderful place to be to have uh, I mean obviously you direct a Broadway show and there are like my friend Walter Bobby who did Chicago oh, yes, great. and like Mantella with Wicked and, and on and on many other people throughout history who the royalties give them some great Reward And it seems that you've done amazing things with that freedom that you've had. You really have done what you wanted to do. Or a lot of other people have this condition where they're told, well, now you can do whatever you want to do. And they don't know what they want to do. You know, when yeah, it's that just freedom. that
3: I, I have projects that I'm still 20 years trying to do. I, that's when we started this conversation. I have a movie that still, after all this time, if I don't get, quote, the A-list actor – two of them at the top I can't get the money because some of the movies I want to make they they're magical realism they combine realism with fantasy there's visual effects it's not a 10 million dollar film it's more like 25 and that 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 what is what do you call it but those 25 30 million dollar films don't exist very much no,
0: anymore it's the 5 million dollar film and the 205 million exactly film.
3: and the 200 million uh, Rarely do women get offered that, you know, and even the men, if you just, again, not naming names, there's a couple, you see that they they hire men that even have no experience, that because everybody thinks they can make those big comic book movies by Wrote or there's, you know, they'd rather not have someone who's too much of a an
0: auteur director doing that. I'm assuming you've done projects that didn't always go the way you wanted them to go, and when they didn't go the way you wanted them to go, did you sense it right up in the beginning? No. That's interesting. Yes. That's interesting.
3: No, if you know it right at the beginning, you'd get out, wouldn't you?
0: Uh, Well, maybe, maybe not. Like for actors, the condition is it's like booking a ticket on a train. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go to work now. Mm-hmm. I've told myself, my wife, my family, in my life, October 15th, we set sail. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden we go and we do it and I go, ooh, this is you're not – nice. <laughs> there's, there's an iceberg here in the harbor. Where, oh, I think God. we're going to hit that iceberg. We should turn around. They're like, no, we're not turning around. You can't turn you, around. You, it's not up to you to turn around.
3: I don't think – I think a lot of these you can't – you're right. You can't turn around. So, but I think, you know, in these projects that take so long to develop, there are points where you, where you should, where you could if you knew. And I won't do anything if I don't really love what I'm doing. You know, I, mean, I Lion King taught me that you don't condescend to your audience, that you don't patronize your audience, that you can still be the artist or do the things you want to do and reach a wide audience. It's proven. It's possible. Take people to a place they didn't know they wanted to go. That's a tricky. Where, where you have most producers say give the audience what they want my my raison d'etre is not that. If you give them what they want, you're going to be bored doing it because mm. you've already seen it, they've done it, they know it. I'm going to be investing minimum of 2 years in any film as a director. You've got to feel excited every day going to work, right? You have to, do you, know? you
0: Do you go to the theater and watch TV and go to the movies? What's entertainment yeah. for you privately? All
3: of them. All of them. I mean, it's You I, watch TV? Oh God, I I, I watched uh, Breaking Bad like at uh, That's one my favorite. I've watched um, what's the um, Downton Abbey until it until it sort of didn't interest me as much anymore. But I that those forms. I've got two projects for television that are in development. You know, will take a long time. But I have two that I'm working on with a writer, and I'm gonna do Grendel. Hopefully, as an opera film. Juan Darien, we're talking about as a film. These are the non-commercial. You know, the word art film, that's such a bad word, isn't it? Shouldn't all films be art films? Shouldn't they all be artfully done? This is the big, this is the conundrum that I have. Because they make art into a bad word. It means you don't make money on it. That's what art means. Right. Whereas any film I do, I, whether it's a big, huge one, like Across the Universe was a big film, or not, you hope you're doing it artfully.
0: Who produced Across the Universe?
3: Well, that was Joe Roth and Revolution. That was
0: Joe. Did, did you collaborate with any of the surviving Beatles in that at all, or no? they no, weren't No, they involved. weren't a
3: part of it. I wish yeah. they had been. Right. A, I, I did meet. I sat next to Paul McCartney watching the movie in London. It was so thrilling. I, I, he, right when uh, Jude st- sings All oh, My Love and Hit, I could f- hear McCartney singing under, under his breath. And I died because I was 12 or something when that happened. And um, I, I met with Yoko up in her apartment with the white piano, and uh, Olivia Harrison. Uh, I didn't meet with Ringo, but I wanted their approval when we finished it, even though they don't own the rights to their own music. It's strange, but I am trying to do that on stage.
0: Who owns the rights to their music?
3: Sony ATV. Oh. So when we get those worked out, I would love to do it on the stage because we rehearsed it like we were doing a real musical when we did the movie. And, it, and choreo- you know, I put the choreography back in. that I really didn't do much choreography in the movie because I wanted it more real. So that's one thing that I, I really want to do. And, uh, and then these TV things and then this beautiful movie uh, called Riders on the Storm, although we'll probably have to change the title, which is an updating of The Flying Dutchman. And it takes the, that myth, this is something I love to do, take the myth of the Dutchman and bring it into the present. And it takes place in Newport and New Bedford, a love story, a kind of action love story. And this is the one where I was mentioning, okay, but I have great actors, the greatest actors for these two leads. And for me, it's more exciting that they aren't household. Well, one is sort of, but, you know, that's thrilling, because then you can believe it. You know, it's fantastic. But I'm but it's this this number that i'm dealing with the number can
0: we get it down to
3: 15 i'm going yeah but then it doesn't have sailing scenes that are of the 1800s mixed with the present and you know but
0: somehow in spite of these limitations cuz what you try to do is such a rich meal you prevail you find a way
3: i guess so you find I a, will. you find a way
0: you find a way don't you yeah
3: i hope so, so.
0: I have no doubt we'll see Julie Taymor's The Flying Dutchman in our sights in the future. You can see her film version of A Midsummer Night's Dream in select theaters in the U.S. and the U.K. This is Alec Baldwin. You're listening to Here's the Thing.